In this episode of the Phantom Jukebox, we conclude our two-part series of the 27 Club, studying some of the later members, and then explore the more theoretical side of this phenomenon. We're live. Welcome to the Phantom Jukebox. I'm Ty Lindsay. And I'm Joe Shannon. And we're two musicians that dive into the world of music, their myths, conspiracies, and bizarre music history. Uh, you can find our back catalog on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Good Pods. I know there's a Google one. I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a Samsung free now, I believe. Anywhere that there is a streaming service, we should be there. Uh, but if they have a rating feature, as in like you can leave comments or leave stars or whatever the equivalent of, you know, leave us five stars. And, you know, what do you think of the show? Like, we really appreciate it. And it helps us out a lot on the backside. It really, really does. Maybe give us some uh, ideas of something you really want to see in a future episode. You can also talk to us on Twitter at Phantom Jukebox underscore Facebook at Phantom Jukebox. We're also on Instagram at Phantom Jukebox Podcast, TikTok at Phantom Jukebox Podcast, and YouTube. Yeah, just let us know how you're doing. We'd love to hear from you. How are you, Joe? I'm doing pretty good. I thought all day today was Monday, and we're recording this on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. A Tuesday sometime in the past or future. Whatever. Um, so before we get into like the the... This episode's got some like darker points to it. Mm. So I just kind of want to put a disclaimer out there in the beginning. Uh, this feature, this episode features like suicide and it's got some mm, substance yeah. abuse, a lot of substance abuse uh, parts of it because of the, uh, we're going to be getting into uh, Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse and their stories are tragic. Um, so just, just some helpful number numbers for you. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or, you know, you're in a really, really dark place, and you need to talk to a professional, which highly encourage, uh, call the Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, or you can text H-O-M-E, HOME, to the Crisis Text Line at 741-741, which I think is a pretty cool feature. Um, I wasn't expecting them to have a text line, but. They do. If yeah, you're not, that's, that's some people, pretty helpful. Yeah, if some people just aren't comfortable with calling. Um, and that, that if that's your thing. Uh, if you if also if you or anybody is struggling with any kind of substance abuse, because that has been a mm. overarching theme with the Twenty Seven Club, yeah. uh, one way or another. Um, please call one eight hundred six six two four three five seven to talk to you know professionals on that end. All the numbers are 24-7, they're free, uh, and they've got professionals on the line. Friends are great to talk to. I think you, if you need to be with somebody, get with some friends. But in the ultimately, I think you do need to talk to a professional uh, in those particular circumstances, for sure. Yeah, I think uh, friends are definitely uh, helpful in the temporary. But mm -hmm. if you want the long-term help and to really uh, see some changes in your life, some professional help is always nice. Right. You know, you're not alone in that. I mean, there's, there's other people who have been through the same thing and, you know, they, they'll have advice for you, you know, 
from them have seen you before. Exactly. So. Be that friend. Don't let your friends go through it alone. Yes. And also be friendly to yourself. Be good to yourself. You're yeah. worth it. A little self-love. Definitely. Definitely some self-love, especially after the past couple of years we've had. Yeah. So these are in no means, uh, or by no means, any kind of real dive into their lives. These are real short summaries of the relevant information that kind of brings it up to the 27 Club. Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse, they need like every like everybody else that we haven't covered yet because we covered Hendrix and we covered Robert Johnson already. Yeah. Uh, from the 27 Club. They need their own episodes and we're working them into at some point covering them. Kurt Cobain is most certain. He was already on the list. Yeah. He was one yeah. of those ones that I wanted to I wanted to get better at my research. He's an interesting character. I know of a particular interest to you. Yes. Especially. Uh, Amy Winehouse, I'm big. I love Amy Winehouse's music. Um, definitely getting an episode, but the, I think she, I I kind of believe her is her story is going to be more akin to Florence Foster Jenkins. To be honest, mm. uh, it's just tragic. Just from from go, another one of those people that just kind of came in and turned out. That was the origin of Be That Friend. Yeah, the Florence Foster Jenkins yeah. episode. I think it's three. If someone is terrible at something, and you're a really good close friend with them. Be nice, but be honest. Be yeah. There's there's a kind way to say, hey, hey, Maybe don't do that. You know they can't all be winners. <laughs> I'm not good at everything. <laughs> so Kurt Cobain. Yes. Let's start. Let's yes. start there. Kurt Cobain was born February twentieth, nineteen sixty seven, and he would ultimately take his own life April fifth, nineteen ninety four. He was an American singer, songwriter, and guitarist for the band Nirvana. Um, his early life kind of parallels Janis Joplin in a way. Mm. Uh, she came from Texas, but obviously he came from Seattle. But they were kind of really artistic people right off the bat. Like they both were kind of, you know, they both were into like poetry and reading. She was more into like drawing and stuff too, uh, painting. But they were both really artistic people in a not so artistic area he's yeah. he's coming coming from like the the sticks part of seattle you know he's coming from like the rednecky part of seattle which i mean kind of for kurt cobain kind of makes it understandable with when you uh look at how much he likes and his influences on like folk music mm -hmm. uh yeah the sticks of seattle yeah just kind of like a old country town in Seattle. Um, and his dad did, you know, maybe not even just his dad, but long story short is his home life was not so great because he was kind of, he kind of, I think he considered himself more feminine in ways. Like he was more of an artistic type guy. He didn't yeah. do football. He didn't really care for sports. He liked artsy stuff. He liked, I think he had like a lot of like lady friends. Um, he didn't, he just, he wasn't one of the boys, you know, he was just, mm. you know, maybe he was just like a really sensitive kid. I don't, you know, it just, it just shows that being super tough on him, you know, no, you're going to play football, not yeah. the best move. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for, uh, I don't know if that works for anyone, but it certainly wasn't going to work here. Yeah. Uh, so he, you know, his home life in his mind, he hated his home life. So he'd wind up quitting school. And then I believe at least weed enters his life around the end of when he quit high school and things like that. So 
he wasn't doing anything super hard just yet, but he was certainly beginning. Yeah. I mean, uh, especially around that era. Yes. Uh, getting into weed at that time wasn't like, oh, oh, what are you doing? Yeah. It was it's like, kinda, a, it's pretty common. It's like acid in the 70s. It's like, oh, big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you saw God too. Whoop de doo. Uh, 1985. Uh, we actually, I wanted to point out at 1985, he would see some happier times because mm. when I did the research on him, it just never really seemed to get better. Uh, yeah. At least in the documentaries I was watching, I didn't watch bleach, uh, for this, Yeah, but no, uh, cause that was more of a specific bio to him and I needed enough information on him, but I needed it to pertain back to the 27 club. Like what ultimately comes back our way. Okay. And he would have some happier times in uh, 85, late 80s. Uh, he, I think he moved in with a, he moved in with like an aunt that had a like kind of a recording studio, home studio kind of situation. So he was able to kind of like begin his musical journey around this time. And it was really a good outlet for him. Like that was what he needed to do. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, obviously he formed one of the most famous bands of all time. So he'd form a few bands and he really got to work on like his songwriting skills, his, his, uh, his musical chops. I don't, I don't, whenever I listen to, uh, Nirvana, I don't really get like guitar virtuoso, but I mean, he was a pro, he was a decent rhythm and rhythm player, like singing and playing guitar yeah, or any instrument is difficult. And I think he did a good job at that. I, I, I saw him in a catalog with like Randy Rhodes and like, these are two different people. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I don't think Randy Rhodes really had much of a singing voice, but he was doing like neoclassical type stuff on guitar. And he'd brought in like, like the, the, the shreddy guitar era yeah, and, or the guitar virtuoso era. No, thank you. Nirvana, like Kurt Cobain's not on that list. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not com- trying to compare them, but I mean, there are a lot of uh, examples through the lesser known, uh, you know, Nirvana albums and uh, records that, really did have some pretty hardcore riffs and pretty cool like uh playing styles but those were never the hits so oh, yeah, they never no. got we talked about it uh was a was a beethoven we talked about like the the singles mm-hmm. of an album are uh, are never the best songs yeah Cobain really got to work on his musical chops here like he just his passion for it was obvious um and for one reason or another in the early nineties, uh, we, we entered the heroin era for him, mm. like pretty, pretty early on, even before the music stuff really kicks off. Cause he formed some bands. They dissolve, formed another band. They dissolve. Um, I think one was called fecal matter, mm. which was the one that kind of stayed around for a while. Um, that was never, I don't think it ever really had a chance to take off, but he learned everything he needed to learn there for Nirvana there. Okay. Yeah. In a way, like there was of the the bands that he just kind of formed and you know would eventually dissolve. That was one of the most important ones. That mm-hmm. kind of let him go. Oh, okay, this is my sound. This is what Kurt Cobain sounds like. Yeah. So, um, he in in the early like really early nineties he starts heroin. He tries to quit, but he kind of like immediately kind of goes back to it. It's it he. There's only kind of like a brief window where he wasn't on heroin in the nineties. Mm. That's man. I, from what I've heard, that's one of the, the drugs that like 
people stay on for so long because once they try to quit, the withdrawal symptoms are almost worse than the symptoms after taking it. Like, yeah, I hear it's a bad one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're all, they're all bad, but I hear that one's pretty bad. Uh, Nirvana bassist, and you're going to have to forgive me for this guy's last name. Uh, Nirvana bassist, Chris Novoslick. Oh, yeah, I never really knew how to pronounce that either. N-O-V-O-S-E-L-I-C, or Chris, uh, commented in an interview. Uh, he, talking about Cobain, was always out, um, always, he was out of his mind on heroin. I remember seeing him in, in uh, those days, and he was loaded. Mm-hmm. So in uh, March 1994, while in Rome on tour, um, he had he kind of has this breakdown on stage at one point. Like I, I, he smashes his guitar and kind of loses it a little bit, and he has just like a nervous breakdown for one yeah. reason or another. Yeah, because I think he was one of those people, also like Joplin. Um, she just didn't really. She would kill in like bars and kind of smaller venues. But one of the things I read is when she came on to like Woodstock, she was, she was scared. Like one of the, she was, she had a lot of stage fright. And it's one of the reasons she, she drank and did so much heroin Mm. uh, was to try to like loosen up to get on stage. Yeah. And she would say like her, her, the Southern comfort thing, you know, drinking all that whiskey was to loosen her up a little bit. And then I think it just becomes habit forming. Wow. Yeah. It becomes, it becomes a habit into a dependency. And then, like that may not be bad if that's your first like big giant concert. But then when you have, when you're doing a tour, or like a, a festival and you have those big concerts, you can't do, be doing that every night. And then you, yeah, yeah develop I have a, like a pattern. Yeah. I have a, a, a relative like when, you know, she's a really, really strong singer. And when she goes, like she was telling me that, you know, when she goes on to, uh, go on stage to clear her vocal cords, she'll actually take a shot of some, uh, some kind of whiskey. I don't, I'm not sure which one it is, but it helps like clear out the, for her, it helps like clear her throat out. Yeah. But that's not like Janis Joplin had a bottle on stage. It was on, you know how the comedians have a, a stool with a drink on it. Yeah. That drink would be a bottle of wow. Southern comfort. Well, I mean, I remember seeing, I think in the, the music video to black by Pearl jam, you can see that when Eddie Vedder goes like after a, a line while there's like a guitar, like he goes to the drum set where all the water is. There's also just a bottle of like a vodka right there, but <laughs> that's a little much for like on stage. I might do like a hot sake would be nice. Like a shot of hot sake. Yeah. It'd be like sting where you get like a tea set <laughs> <laughs> and you still sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what happened? <laughs> Man, he really, he really hurt him. I think he must have blown something. Uh, yeah. New Sting. I love him, but I mean, hmm. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, so Cobain in 94, he has this kind of mental breakdown in Rome while they're doing their European tour and eventually winds up back in his hotel and takes like a handful of tranquilizers Jeez. in the hotel room. Like he, he goes into like a five-star hotel room. And takes a bunch of tranquilizers, but eventually they like they they get it out of his system. He lives, and then uh, later on he returns home to Seattle and he threatens him to shoot himself already once. They get all of the guns out of his house because he was a he was a gun enthusiast. 
they get all the guns out of his house. He manages one way or another to get a hold of a shotgun. One source said he was able to convince a friend to buy it from him for home defense. And it was that shotgun wow. uh, April in April. So that was in March. He has the breakdown. And then later on in April, um, he would wind up taking his own life with it. And uh, April 1994, he left behind with a letter. Um, he left behind a letter that would say that his one of the reasons that he did this was because that his like his creative process was just like he he lost his love for music mm. like in in being kind of like a nervous person going out on stage and then maybe the the pressures of the music industry because they were pretty hard on him and he was pretty anti-establishment like i will say that about cobain not the hugest nirvana fan but what i will say is when you there are a lot of people say like yeah down with the government and yeah. then, and then they're one of the first people like to call the police if something goes wrong. Yeah, f you uh, or uh, uh, f I won't I won't do what you tell me. Uh, yeah, and something the, like that. And then uh, yeah, it, yeah, 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 rage against the machine. We hate <laughs> capitalism. Buy our album <laughs> to yeah. hear how much we hate about whatever. But at least with Kurt Cobain, he was serious. Yeah. He was dead serious. And you can tell by the interviews with uh oh, he doesn't give it with him and especially with him and Dave Grohl. Yeah, no. <laughs> Dave Grohl looks like he's kind of like a golden retriever. Like he is just like he's funny. Yeah. But not like caustic, I think. Cobain was like, Oh, I'm gonna mess with these people. Yeah. Because yeah. I hate this. And then I'm you know, he'd wear like I think like a blouse with a hole in it on top of like whatever shirt he was wearing. <laughs> I think he <laughs> Didn't he go to a word show in a dress? Probably. But yeah, he he was like actually uh, anti-establishment and he proved that he wasn't yeah. just saying it. So I will say, not that I love that mentality. I do appreciate he was, you know, he walked the walk with it. Yeah. Um, uh, that's the least you can do with, with uh, if you're going to preach it, at least not be a hypocrite. I'm talking to you, uh, Five Finger Death Punch. <laughs> <laughs> thought you'd like that one appreciate it oh yeah i'm gonna beat him up with the butterfly wings <laughs> i'm beautiful uh i would they, you know what i wanted to you know what i want that i would actually buy that single if five finger death punch if did they were song. just honest all of a sudden yeah so like, <laughs> hey we're not so tough we're kind of just normal guys we're not gonna punch the devil we're we're just kind of mad about taxes right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if he came out, just are beautiful, no matter what you say, just hands in the air. <laughs> Words can't bring me down. Not only would I wave my hands, I'd also be crying while doing so. Oh, yeah, totally. He just, he just takes the rose petals out of his cut off camo shorts and just <laughs> throws them in the air. Doves in the background. As you can see, we are trying to bring light uh, to this uh, mood that we are talking about. Yeah, no, that's and it's kind of hard to work in jokes around. But. That that's yeah, no, that's going to happen a lot because yeah. we're it is serious. We we very much understand, um, and the jokes we make are going to be about either the horrible people that put these people in this situation, five finger death punch, <laughs> or something to try to make us laugh because this all gets like I mean it. it we got a whole other person to talk about that horrible things happened to. And then we kind of get into uh, fun conspiracy time. Yeah. I'm, I'm a person so. who likes to listen to, uh, 
to podcasts while I'm driving. Yeah. And so I don't want to bum anyone out too much while they're driving. Listen to this. No, it's, yeah, this episode's got, it, it, it's, it gave yeah, it bummer time. <laughs> but, uh, and also, I don't know if you've heard that. I actually, one of the first times I heard this was from the Highlander, but I'm curious on when the Highlander came out now. Because in 94, um, you know, the, Cobain takes his life in 94. He quotes, it's better to burn out than fade away. Ooh. Which I, I don't subscribe to at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I might, my caveat though, is in terms of creative careers, like let's say uh, Quentin Tarantino actually talked about this of why he's like, he's like, I'm going to make a 10th movie and probably be done. Okay. Yeah. Cause he's, he's saying that in, in, Tarantino's sense he's saying that you know I directors in his mind don't get better with age like there's a point where directors reach their peak and he says he wants to go out on top okay so he wants to make one more movie and he's like 10's a good number I think I'll call it so in a creative sense uh I I kind of maybe agree with that like you know you could release another like I think there should have only been one Matrix movie for example yeah. You know, you could release a sequel as a cash grab, but it's just going to diminish how good the first movie was. Okay. I can see that. So, in a creative sense, I think that's an interesting quote. And in terms of your living, breathing life. Yeah. Maybe I keep think, the living, breathing part. And uh, I think you can, I think it's nice to fade away. I think it's nice to get old. And then you can find something else you like. I mean, it's hard. It's easier it, said than done. But. As far as music and bands are concerned, I mean, make another uh, band. You know, stopping with the music and halting your career for a while seems like a, a great move for bands to then re like reunion tour and just make a whole bunch more money later on down the line. After a certain point, though, uh, yeah, it's going to be like at least ten years. Nirvana, Nirvana wasn't around for ten years at this point. Yeah, but if they if they just broke up and then got back together 10 years later, that's after the, after the incredible success of their albums. Yes. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't the case, no. Yeah, that's true. But they, yeah, no, they had a, he, he had, they had a legendary releases in their lifetime. Yeah. Um, Nevermind and in utero are the two that come to mind. I know there's a middle one in between there that I don't remember. Um, Yeah. I know those two albums were just explosions like this. So much out of those albums. They only had three. Wow. Like they had some other things, but there's only three studio albums. So I wanted to talk about kind of briefly why his death was so significant other than the fact that he's a human being like the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, currently uh, Nirvana and they've only remember three records. Coming going from 1991, I think Nirvana began in 87, but Nirvana that we know didn't really pick up till the late 90s, 90 or sorry, late 90, 91. Okay. And 91 is when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out. Mm. So really Nirvana as a success story is only a three year span. Wow. In three years, they produce music that would sell 75 million records. Wasn't uh, Jimi Hendrix just about the same? Four years. Yeah, three or four. His entire career was four years, and I believe he also had three albums with two different bands. Mm. Like, it's the Jimi Hendrix experience, I believe, for two of them, and one of them was different. 
and he was trying to work on a fourth one when his, you know, I totally think his manager had something to do with it. Uh, anyway, and uh, so Smells Like Teen Spirit was so big, it's accredited with ending the hair metal movement. Really? So if you're curious when hair metal, like, you know, Van Halen, Poison, uh, all that kind of ended was Smells Like Teen Spirit. Because everyone's like, wow, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to wear, <laughs> I whoa. need to wear flannel and be mad about everything. <laughs> so basically like, you know, they threw away their Coke and hairspray, got some heroin and flannel, and it was the 90s. Wow. Pretty much what they, they, Smells Like Teen Spirit dominated. I mean, the, the you. You hear the ducka dan dan, and you already know what song that is. Like yeah. if you were to hear like yeah. the first like three notes of that, you know what song it is. It's inf- I want to say infamous. It's it's huge. So going back to his his lyrics, um, I wanted to talk about you know how he was connecting to the youth in that way. An excerpt from a survey by the U.S. Department of Justice of teens thirteen to seventeen. This was sampled in nineteen ninety two. Quote. Um, and this is, uh, this is talking about, um, concerns of the youth of that, of the nineties, mm, yeah. the ages between 13 and 17 to put that in plain English quote, they regarded friends, home and school as the greatest influences of their gen on their generation. They regarded school grades, career uncertainties and growing pains, fears, and getting along with their parents as the most important problems. In 1992, they considered drug abuse, peer pressure, AIDS, teen pregnancy, alcohol abuse, sex and crime, and uh, sex and crime, and teen gangs as the most important problems facing the teen generation. Mm. I mean, you a lot of those themes are just in the span of the Nirvana catalog. Yeah, yeah. He talked about lost love. He talked about you know again uncertainties was his biggest one. Cobain did not have a great home life, which is, you know, a concern going on here. So he was at, he was at the right place at the right time and then really kind of dug into his, you know, dug into, but really kind of feeling, you know, felt what his audience was feeling related it to himself and then wrote 75 million copies worth of, you know, yeah. you know, 75 million records sold type music. Um, his death would not only provide the club with a name, but also would officially bring the phenomenon into the modern era. Like we talked about earlier. So, you know, people were kind of forming some weird things like, man, isn't it weird that Joplin, Brian Jones, and all these people passed away back to back to back. And then Kurt Cobain passes. And then his mom, you know, talks about, you know, the, you know, not wanting him to join that club. Um, you know, then people are like, okay, it's called the 27 club and Cobain and these other four people are in it. How far does it go back? It starts in the nineties. You know, it starts at basically yeah. 94 yeah. is the true birth of this phenomenon. Speaking of very, very, very sad. <laughs> um, we're getting into Amy Winehouse. Yes. She was a British singer, songwriter, and musician, uh, hugely influenced by jazz and later by 50 girl, fifties uh, girl groups. Um, so in the beginning, she was just kind of like doing a jazzy thing and she looked like, not really looked like she dressed more like normal, I guess, like what we would kind of think a pop singer would kind of dress like. Okay. Um, but when we, the Amy Winehouse you're probably thinking of has like the cat lines and like the bear, the beehive hairdo. 
Yeah. Which would come later with like the, when the fifties girl groups, um, that influence kind of came in because uh, her, her sound went from being just purely jazz and ha- it had more of like a fifties pop, um, influence into it. Like back, uh, um, uh, it's not back to black, not back in black, but back to black. Ah, uh, yes. that album is certainly more, uh, girl, like fifties girl group than, uh, her previous album, Frank, what it was called. Hmm. I mean, Frank is called that from Frank Sinatra. I'm like this kind of big jazzy number. Uh, so she was a self-taught singer and musician. Um, she would actually at 12 win a scholarship for just, she did a, she did a cover of, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but she did a cover of a song uh, that got her a scholarship and she would be there for a while and she would get some formal training there. But before then, so from, whenever she got into music to 12 was all on her. Wow. And then she, you know, that's just raw talent going in just listening to music. Like her dad sang to her a lot. She developed an interest in it very, very early. And then just like, that was her focus. And she, she was just naturally good. Uh, got some formal training for a while, but uh, you know, ultimately uh, she would wind up kind of dropping out of the, uh, the music school, which, which was sad. It's, it's, she kind of had like a rebellious phase going like she mm. will learn a bit about her kind of attitude that kind of would be a problem. Which I mean, to be that good at 12, was she kind of pushed into music? It didn't seem to be. It, it, I think uh, from what I to understand, like she had family that was heavily involved in music. And again, like her, uh, her dad would sing like Frank Sinatra songs to her. Okay. She was talking about it in an interview that she would always hear her dad sing Frank Sinatra songs. And she said when she heard Frank Sinatra for the first time, she knew all the words, but she didn't know what Frank sounded like. Huh? She said she knew all the words immediately because, you know, that's what she grew up on, uh, hanging out with her dad. So I think music was just a big part of her life. I don't think she was pushed into it. I think it was just something that was naturally uh, cultivated with her, like, you know, the culture of her family and things like that. Yeah. I think it was the nicest from what I to understand. I don't think it was a Michael Jackson situation. Okay, good. Uh, or Beethoven situation as we yeah. learned. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to comment how brave it was to be doing uh, a jazzy rock pop thing in the two thousands when she's going up against the Britney Spears and Jennifer Lopez. Oh, wow. Completely so, opposite. Yeah, so that's what like if you're if a if a young girl is uh, or young woman is breaking into, you know, the music pop scene in the 2000s, basically you've got the the Britney Spears, Aguilera, Jennifer Lopez, uh, Nelly route. Yeah, like you're supposed yeah. to be just hot. It's supposed to be some beat in the background, and you're supposed to be just a dynamite singer on top of it. Except for Jennifer Lopez's situation. Yeah, but, um. But she's like, but uh, Amy Winehouse is like, I like jazz. I'm going to do jazz. And I think she was, and also high voices, Britney Spears, Jennifer oh, Lopez, yeah. Nelly, yeah. all high female voices. But there is actually the equivalent. I do not know the name of it. It is a long Italian word. Um, but there is the equivalent of like a female of what you would consider a female baritone. Right. So that's, you're kind of getting in the share territory. Yeah. She wasn't as low as share. But she was slightly above it. I think Cher, like, there's 
Cher, I think around that area. And then you get to the, the top end of the male vocal range. Okay. Like, it's yeah. like, if you look yeah. at it all together, Cher has a lower voice than some guys, but I really like Cher's voice. Yeah. There's a lot of female singers don't use that part of their, their, like a lot, a lot of, let's say pop and famous type singers don't utilize that part of their voice. And Amy Winehouse is like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do jazz and I'm going to sing with my lower register and then do like a lot of like scoops and things like that, which weren't where we're out of fashion by it for at least, uh, we were looking at 50 years at this point. Well, I think also that was kind of a smart move at the same time because oh, yeah. she's not sharing any of the, like there's no competition, but there's also no market. That's true. So there's, there's a, there's a double edge to that sword as being so unique that you stick out. But if you don't have the talent to back it up, nobody's going to follow you. But what she had was just raw talent mm. going in. Um, there is no, also I wanted to say there is no Adele without Amy Winehouse. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Adele is very much, she does her own thing, but Amy crawled. So, uh, Adele could run, I suppose. I don't know what the, I don't know the equivalent would be singing wise, but there so is, she could roll in the deep, roll in the deep. <laughs> Adele, I, Adele's good. I just, I'm, I'm Amy Winehouse fan more so. Um, mainly because Amy Winehouse lyrics are pretty raw and they're more personal. Yeah. When Adele does go more of that jazzy route, that's the stuff that I like that Skyfall. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't like that movie, but I think it's a fantastic movie. All oh, the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything on that bond list, those soundtracks were pretty fire. Yeah. I don't like Sam Smith's. I don't The Spectre was a oh, terrible bond movie. I, I wasn't including that, but yeah. And then didn't uh Billy Eilish do one. Okay. I kind of stop at st- Skyfall, <laughs> all of the stuff, Skyfall and back. You know, it just, it's weird how like the James Bond movies just kind of end at Skyfall. You think that they'd get Daniel Craig for at least one or two more. I love it when they just leave you on a cliffhanger and then never come back to You're it. You're like, you know, it would be a damn shame <laughs> if we ruined it from this point onward. So we might as well just stop here. We could take an actor like Christoph Waltz and a legendary character like Dr. No and then just ruin it at both at the same time. I'm just glad. We didn't make another two James Bond movies. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. It's like it'd be crazy, be crazy if they made a fourth, and I can't even imagine I'm saying this, a fifth Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> be crazy if they thought, hey, Sean Connery's dead. I think we can keep this franchise going. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just glad we don't live in that universe. You know? <sighs> what a horrible universe. Mm. <laughs> dark times um nah, not a bad segue um so amy winehouse kind of basically as soon as she kind of gets into kind of beginning to take off i there's different reasons for it but ultimately let's i don't want to i don't want to get into the specifics of it but long story short very early into her career enters drugs in 2005 and uh part of it what a lot of it had to do with the stresses of the music industry in her case 
Um, later on, it would say like as the crowds got bigger and as the pressure got worse, they would say that she would become more of a nervous performer. So yeah. like that confidence would kind of go and then she would, you know, she would ban hers. Like the heroin was involved and like, they think they were able to kind of get her away from heroin at one point. But uh, alcohol was always the one that just like really was hard to get her away from. Yeah. That's I, knowing a, a couple of people that have went through alcohol, you know, problems. Uh, that yeah. is, that is one that's hard to break for sure. Yeah. Um, the album. So she did actually, Amy Winehouse had two albums. Um, 2003 was Frank and then back to black in 2006. Uh, her album back to black won her five Grammys in one go. Wow. Which tied her for being the like female artist. Like it tied her with two other artists over, you know, the history of the Grammys to have done that. There's only like three and she's one of them. Wow. Um, she was one of the best like breakout female artists in the United States, I believe as well. Um, just from the, the category of like lady female, you know, yeah, yeah. a lady artist. So basically really, really early on in two albums, like she had a great start and then an even better follow up. So she becomes, you know, the fame gets, it gets faster than I think she's able to cope with it. Yeah. So it's some people are just naturals with handling, you know, crowds and stuff, but they, she kind of can't, I don't think I don't think she could handle it all. Especially with already going through problems, you know, I yeah, mean, she it, had a lot of relationship problems. She wrote that second album with her, I, I guess with her, uh, you know, studio saying, maybe you should go back to rehab. I mean, if you're already at that point and then you get even more fame and, and stuff like that, that can't be, it makes it even harder to deal with, you know? Yeah. So, um, kind of, uh, summarizing the rest of this here, she, she has like, so she only, she releases back to black in 2006, but, um, she doesn't, she's kind of working on more stuff, but I was, I was noticing that she did only have the two releases and she's still touring back to black in like 2008 and nine. You know, she's mm -hmm. doing like TV performances and stuff, but she has a string of really bad shows, especially from 2009 to 2011. Um, she's either intoxicated on stage, the crowd's booing her, people are walking out of the concert. Wow. Um, she can't like stand upright. She'll get mad because she's having, you know, she's struggling on stage. Um, it's pretty bad. Like there's, there's reports of it. And then like it, her, it's no longer, I mean, it hasn't been for a while, but it's certainly like a worldwide understanding that AB Winehouse is going through something right now. There's probably a problem. Yeah. So that's what's just super embarrassing, I imagine. Uh, and then um, you know, she cancels a lot of tours. Um, she's going to rest of like a European tour, and then she's going to go home and like rest. Uh, July 23rd, 2011, at 10 a.m., Winehouse's bodyguard would find her in bed and he wasn't able to wake her, um, wake her, but you know, she would sleep in super late after really long nights. And previously she had been up till two in the morning. Mm. So he wasn't able to wake her up. So, but he, apparently this is like a, Hey, maybe this isn't a thing. I'll come back later. Yeah. Which I mean, you could still probably wake somebody up. I, I, I don't love that story. And then he returns again at 3 PM. 
and he called an ambulance once he couldn't wake her up a second time. She was in the same position, and he wasn't able to get wake her up at oh, that point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the ambulances arrive, and she was declared short. You know, she had, they reported her dead very, very soon after that. She was, she was already dead there. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, later on, I believe it was 20, 2013, you know, it was called misadventure at first, and then in 2013, it was officially called alcohol poisoning after they were asked to look into it again. Um, her alcohol, her blood alcohol levels were 0. 0.416%. Hmm. Uh, at the time of death, five times the legal driving limit. Wow. 0.15% is considered pretty drunk. Yeah. Um, I think it's like point, was it 0.07 is where you're, you're like, you, you shouldn't drive. You're kind of drunk already. And then 0.15 is like, okay, you're very drunk. And then 0.4 is, yeah. is pretty insane. So almost an entire, almost like a half of a percent of her blood, like of alcohol was present in her blood at the time. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of alcohol. Um, so now I think we kind of, we, we went through a lot of, we went through that so we could get to the speculation side of things. What the between Cobain and um, Amy Winehouse, those that's kind of the more of the definitive information about the 27 Club. Okay. Yeah. Now we break into the speculative side of things. There's a lot of theories of how some of the famous, you know, how some of the famous people died, but we're focusing on everything like everything beyond this point is a speculation or theory. There's a lot of them, but these are some of the main ones that pertain to the 27 Club as a whole. Okay. Yeah. Individually, like Brian Jones, like there's like a cop conspiracy with his. I mean, Hendrix, there's a murder conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, Jim Morrison may still be alive, that kind of thing. Those are all, those are all individual theories. Brian Johnson, we already covered his. Uh, Robert Johnson, sorry. Robert Johnson. Yeah. Robert Johnson, Lots we already Johnsons. covered his, uh, uh, you know, some conspiracies around him. Yeah, the deals with the devil, like the forming of the crossroads myth. So. Those are individual myths. What we're going to look at is the 27 Club as a unit. Okay. The myths surrounding the entirety of the club. Okay. Okay. Or theories around there such as. And um, we had talked about in the, in the previous episode after Amy Winehouse's death that uh, there would be a scientific study done to see if famous, like, you know, prominent artists we're more likely to die at 27 because they're like, okay, this is kind of ridiculous. You know, let's spend some government money on this. So this is a, this is from the British medical journal. Mm. Like this is a accredited, this isn't crystals.org, bigfoot, tinfoilhat.net. This is a respected medical journal, right? Doing okay. this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it's done mostly with like numbers. So, no like blindfold tests or anything like okay, that. This yeah. is a this is a crunching of uh crunching of numbers. So the British Medical Journal published an article in 2011 uh following Amy Winehouse's passing and the study was to find out they grabbed a study set of British musicians 
whose albums topped the British music charts between 1956 and 2007. Okay. So that's their data set of where they're going to pull from. Of the 522 musicians, only three had died at the age of 27. Hmm. Out of all the musicians of that, uh, musicians of that particular data set. Um, the same number of deaths occurred in other ages as well. So beyond tw- the, you know, 27. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there were other like patterns, quote unquote, not like patterns, but there are other group yeah. clusters yeah. of them. Yeah. So to expand this, they would, ex- they would add to the data set. Uh, they would expand the data set to get more like a, uh, um, nuanced data so they would go from musicians from 1950 to 2010 uh and which would expand the set to 11,000 musicians so they would like so they did like a, a first set and then only showed that three musicians died at 27 out of the first 522 yeah and then they're like okay let's just grab everybody from 1950 to 2010 that's a musician so that mm. very much widened the parameters to allow more people in to get more data. Okay. So it was kind of like a test one at first to see if this was something they're going to keep getting into. And the results weren't what they needed, so they expanded it. So out of the 11,000 musicians, how many musicians do you think they noted uh, that had died at 27 years old out of 11,000. How many do you think it was? 11,000. Yes. Um, 500. It was three. So if I'm doing some quick maths, very quick, math. which I'm not good at, I'm going to say that, uh, around a, a, a thousand. 144 died at 27. Hmm. That's still a lot. That's 1% of yeah. the musicians. The highest death rates were actually at the age of 56 at 239 people, hmm. musicians specifically. Yeah. It concluded that there wasn't a unique spike that people had thought with 27. You know, that wasn't a unique number. And if you put all the data, if you're looking at it at just famous people dying at 27, yeah, it looks unique. But if you take all the people that could go into that category, like all the people that could have potentially that happened to and compare it with the other numbers of people that are older or younger dying. The basically conclusion that scientifically there's nothing to say that this is, you know, a unique occurrence. Mm. It just looks that way because we're looking at it like real, we're only seeing a couple people, but really in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not. It's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty yeah. small number. Um, they also found that the, the majority of deaths were either were self-inflicted in some way. Uh, may, uh, would that be alcohol or by drugs, namely heroin, and then self-harm. So mm. alcohol, heroin, and then, you know, any kind of, you know, self-harm type stuff were like the, the big three, let's say, that appeared the most common. Yeah, that's um so it all kind of what we're kind of saying now like you know drugs and alcohol being kind of a reoccurring theme it it may seem kind of obvious now but at the time this wasn't something that had been really studied. 
our kind of like familiarity with it now comes from studies like this that happened previously. Okay. So it was, yeah. le- it was less of an obvious thing then. Um, that was probably our more, our most accredited uh, study of this, you know, you know, data numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Medical journals. I called this section other theories high and low. Okay. Uh, inquisitive minds outside the realm of science have also stepped up to the plate to try to solve this mystery. Oh, oh. So take everything we had with science and statistics and just let it go. Throw it out the window. Okay, yes. We don't need that it's anymore. It's already gone. It's already gone. Uh, first up to bat is deals with the devil. Ah. Um, kind of bringing back our, our, uh, our guy, Robert Johnson. This is the belief that all musicians have sold their souls to the devil for their talents and fame. A lot of Johnson's songs had devil themes and references, uh, which we go into extensively in our second episode of, the, of first season one. Uh, but for example, Crossroad Blues literally did going into detail about him going to the crossroads and making a deal. Yeah. Just short of having a checklist. Uh, Brian Jones um, of the Rolling Stones had uh, and the Rolling Stones had satanic satanic imagery in one of their albums, which was likely a gimmick. But they had uh, uh, her satanic secret service or something of that nature. Nice. Where there's a lot of like that imagery around. But yeah, that was kind of like hot at the time because I think we're, they're probably beginning to compete with Black Sabbath. Mm. It's like, come on, everyone was doing it. Kind of, sort of. And like, even Black Sabbath was like, well, why not have a horror movie on stage? That was their whole thing. Yeah. The satanic theories, of course, expand to Cobain as well. Oh. Which was something that was interesting. I could not find it for the life of me, but I tried. I tried so hard to get a clip of this. But there is a short film, I guess we'll call it. It's more of like a three-minute video. Of uh, this is on IMDb though, so it's technically like a short film. Oh wow! Named this is aptly named. Actually, what do you think? Just very, very, very quickly. What do you think a film about Kurt Cobain being satanic would be called? Mm. Consider the person who came up with it is also the writer, director, and a pastor. Keeping all that in mind, what do you think he would call it? Imagine the the wells of creativity. The deep thought and and clever metaphor that you could come up with, even playing on words with the Nirvana song, that Sm- of course he doesn't know. Smells like teen Satanism. That would have been so much better. That would have been <laughs> a lot better. I would have gone with "Smells Like Satan." Um, no, it's you know, see if you can catch the metaphor. All right. Okay. Okay. It may it may go way over your head. If you're driving, maybe slow down a little bit so it doesn't you don't you'll okay. miss it. Get ready. This is super complex. You're not you turn the high beams on real quick. <laughs> the film is called Nirvana's Kurt Cobain was a satanic Buddhist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's more of a satanic sta- Buddhist? Satan Kurt Nirvana's Kurt Cobain was a satanic Buddhist. It is a film from 2015 by Pastor Steve Anderson. It is a three-minute-long film that is on uh, that the the credits are on IMDb. I could not find it. I want to watch it. <laughs> it is the only three minutes of a sermon I really care to watch right now. 
but I really want to hear what, what he has to say. Steve Anderson, I'm hoping it's kind of like a Northwest accent. Well, uh, the only way to get it, you have to show up at the church. And if you put enough in the offering plate, then one gets slid towards you in the pew. If I get a DVD with this on it, <laughs> I'll hand you a Lincoln. I'll hand you $5. That's, that is a dollar per minute plus two more for Jesus. If I get a DVD with this on it. I was still wrapping my brain around what is a satanic Buddhist. I don't know what that is, but I want to find out. I'm kind of interested now. Well, that actually, I mean, if he were to explore the various forms of Satanism, as we have on this podcast for some reason, that doesn't necessarily mean, to him, to Steve Anderson, it definitely means red horns, pitchfork, fire and brimstone. Mm. What it could also mean, though, is where you're the uh, the center of your own universe. I'm not saying I subscribe to it completely because there's some things about yeah, it. Yeah. Um. Uh. There, there, there is facets where you're kind of the center of the universe, and then Buddhist. It's like you may be finding inner peace in that kind of sense. Buddhism is kind of <laughs> Buddhism is like a selflessness <laughs> kind of thing, though. So it's gonna sip on my tre- tea and think about inner peace with Satan. Inner peace with. <laughs> inner peace with my own inner universe. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a lot of uh, word salad. That's very, very interesting. And if I'm, I'm kind of sad that I haven't seen that be the name of a punk song, <laughs> why not? Uh, but anyway, uh, I don't know if you can catch what the plot might of this might be about, but the plot on IMDb is quote, Pastor Anderson exposes rock star Kurt Cobain and his evil religious views. Mm, yes, yes. Yes. Uh, I could not find it. I wanted to watch it so bad, but uh, alas, anyway, I couldn't find it. But where this kind of, where, where Cobain and Satanism does allegedly have some crossing is uh, apparently... And I heard yes, and I heard no on this. So again, this is why it's in the theory section. Okay, yes. Uh, allegedly, I feel, I feel like that's a litter, Kenny. Allegedly, uh, Cobain wanted Anton LaVey, who played cello, to play cello in Nirvana. And like for a song, not like join the band. Okay. But do like an intro or something like that. Because I think it kind of came down to... um. Cobain was most certainly interested in like alternative stuff. And maybe yeah. he just thought LaVey was an interesting guy. And he finds out that this dude can play cello. And it's like, you know, hey, I think you're interesting. Why not come on board? I'm sure he can play a mean fiddle, I guess. Didn't he have some uh, uh, cello or like stand up bass on, uh, on the MTV Unplugged album? I thought he did. There is, I read that there is some cello in Nirvana and they were talking about like the importance of it, which. I'm not a scholar on the band as a whole. Yeah. Uh, so I can't really say, but cello did come up a few times. I believe there is cello uh, featured predominantly in some other songs, which again, allegedly would have featured LeVay and it just never worked out. You know what I mean? Mm, okay. It'd be like if uh, Alex Jones played a mean harmonica <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of wanted a little bit of that controversy, but some of that sweet blues from a madman. <laughs> Two for one special. Two for one. Just like, um, <laughs> they're poisoning the frogs. <laughs> they're putting chemicals in the water. Put chemicals in the water. New world order. 
I would I'd actually that'd be funny. like Justin Bieber. <laughs> I, I see the thing is, so you, have, you have to cut yourself off to real, real short sentences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I say too much to go get me. Go get me. Whew. But yeah, it'd be kind of like that. Like it would just like it just a crazy alternate person you may have some interest in. By the way, I have no interest in Alex Jones. It's just a metaphor, mm, you know, yeah, yeah. example. But uh, it's maybe he was just interested in LeVay as a person. And then you're like, oh, he plays cello, too. It was it must have been. I think it's like that innocent, to be okay. honest. Okay. I don't think he was uh, sacrificing anything. And honestly, LeVay would have been like, hey, we don't do sacrifices. It's more of a it's more of a you're your own sinner kind of thing. Yeah. LeVay was weird, though. Um, my personal favorite. The astrologers, oh, also take the plate. They, oh, yeah. they step up to the plate. They, I, I thought we weren't on the sciency part. You know, <laughs> I should. You know, I should have moved this around. I should have moved this around. Ugh, that's such a Libra thing to do. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. See, Thank Dakota, you. Dakota is like doing research, and then she had headphones on, and was trying to see if she was going to listen. I just got a hard stare. <laughs> hard stare. I know, just, just saying some garbage. I am a Libra. Oh, that was a guess. You are true. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't, didn't know. I'm a Scorpio. You obviously. knew. That's how you knew. You know what? You just know me too well. You know, Mercury's in the right spot. We've been doing this. Uh, <laughs> we've been doing this podcast too long. You just got to know me too well. <laughs> uh, so the astrologers. <laughs> come, come on the plate um they believe the 27 club is tied to something called sadi sati mm, yes uh s-a-d-e-s-a-t-i i believe that's the type of tea i'm drinking uh yes <laughs> which is a sanskrit word meaning the return of saturn mm. saturn's placement in certain areas is said to bring difficulties disappointments and self-denial into a person's life Apparently, its influence can begin to affect a person near 27 years old. The effect is stronger on artists who are more susceptible to emotional damage and could lead to self-harm in some cases. Um, we talked about in the previous episode that, you know, the one thing they do are kind of like getting on here, which I think is somewhat accurate, is I do think the artists we're talking about are really just they're so into their craft and you actually said something yeah. about you're putting a lot of yourself into the work so people not accepting the work is kind of not accepting you mm, a piece yeah. of you and then kind of getting in your own head it'll affect your own self-esteem it's like what about me is wrong you know what why why doesn't work and some people just not taking it you know taking blows like that very well i mean nobody yeah. likes to be critiqued by the simon cowles of the world but uh um artists in particular i think and even like people that are way just naturally more gifted i think you're just they're at risk of something like that okay yeah which um yeah i think i mean i think everybody needs to make sure like you're getting good sleep and then maybe doing some mental checks you know things like that to make sure you're in your good spots every now and then when yeah you, yeah when you think so but i think especially if you're a very in tune with your artistic side type person like 
that's your life. You know, I mean, there are those, I, I mean, the, to be like Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Hendrix, it's a different level of artist. Yeah. Like it, it's kind of hard to imagine um, having that level of being that in tune with who you are, but still, you know, the flip side of it, like it being so raw, you know, like not being able to, I guess being, um, I'm trying to find the word like, uh, not unbalanced, but uh, un- kind of unstable in ways. It's so yeah. raw. It's not, yeah. I don't know, lots of insecurities built around like your, yourself is wrapped into your talents kind of thing. Yeah, I can see that. So, I mean, poking fun at astrology, astrology all the side, uh, I think that one particular point is pretty good and we can just kind of like control delete everything yeah, else yeah, yeah, yeah so um that all being said which of these theories do you subscribe to the most joe which one do you find yourself hmm. is it is well, it science is it the devil is it the placement of saturn why can there not be truth in all of them maybe yeah. maybe saturn is what brought the devil to kurt cobain Oh, really? Maybe it, it wasn't the moon up there. It was Saturn when Robert Johnson met the devil at the crossroads. With the crossroads is actually talking about the, the crossing of two planets. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Except the one you were, you were talking about numbers. That, that one aside. Uh, the rest. All the math and statistics. You get that out of here. Yeah. All the rest, though. That's that, you, you put those together somewhere in the middle. That's where it is. But, yeah, I... I other than that, uh, I don't really have my own theory as to how they're connected, but uh, definitely just how big the news was getting at the time, especially of uh, Nirvana and um, not Joplin. Um, Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse. Uh, I think definitely had a, a bigger role to play, especially when that was kind of when the, the circle was finally drawn. It was like, oh. Okay, there's there. Now I'm gonna dig deeper and and you know. Yeah, I I definitely think um. I think we wrote your mysticism. It's still kind of like an undefined word here, but the 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 gravity of that certainly came with the news outlets and then needing fuel and needing stories, and then the internet being just the wild wild west that it is. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I talked earlier about, you know, reputable sources, you know, I'll come out and say like with Elvis, and I think in the first episode, I'm like, Hey, this is a crazy story, which means there are crazy sources. I don't really vouch for any of this, but this is what I read. Yeah. Especially with Elvis and like, uh, and Robert Johnson, especially because yeah, there's a the lack of was, information about him. Yeah. He's just a mystery man. Yeah, the lack of stuff that's actually written down about the man, and there's only like two photos of yeah. him. Um, it tells me the devil didn't take the rest. Yeah, <laughs> he done stole his soul in a family photo album. <laughs> devil. Um, one thing I wanted to wrap up on. Uh, we talked about how the club got its name. Talk about it even a little bit this episode. Uh, in part one we learned that Cobain's mother inadvertently gave the name to the 27 club in an interview. Uh, this is very, very recent to his passing. Um, Cobain's mother stated in an interview that uh, she didn't want her son to, uh, she said 
not to join that club. You know, she was trying to talk her son down from like the the various threats he gave about taking his own life. You know, his mom and friends reached out to him trying to talk him down. Um, and though it does seem pretty cut and dry that when you say club, 27 club, okay, there we go. It's she's talking about that. But it came the 27 club came from this interview. Mm. So before she said club, uh, I there was it just wasn't a, I don't believe it was a thing. I couldn't find out it was called like the coincidences of 1970s or anything like that. It's yeah. just it gets his club its name it gets the name club the club part of this from the interview and then the unique feature being that they're all 27 comes later on becomes the catchy title. Um, so she didn't know to call it that. So what she might have been referring to is some previous family tragedies that had happened in the Cobain family. Mm-hmm. Um, Kurt's suicide is not the first in his family. He had two uncles and one great uncle who had taken their lives in various ways. Wow. In the family before. So this is, this is kind of something he would have been sort of kind of pre-exposed to and probably something that um, there, some people said it was something that was kind of like imprinted on him kind of thing, or like he had a, a kind of a unique idea of what suicide was. Yeah. Um, but at the very least he was, I mean, three times in a single family is the odds of that are already incredible. Like yeah, definitely. In, in the bad way. Um, so what she might have been referring to is the family club. You know what I mean? Talking okay. About the, yeah. Don't join that club. Don't do what your uncles did. Mm. So then we also kind of talked about, she inadvertently named it. So it's, it's basically like, Oh yeah, club. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Great. And then she found out that she yeah. accidentally gave it its moniker, which is very, very cruel. And I, I blame the, the, uh, uh, reporter on that was she was specifically talking to on that one well it may like either the the interview that the interview person used it or um somebody heard the interview and then ran with it from there like there's yeah who knows it's just media in general yeah is, is not necessarily basically they'll see cool thing on paper and then the, there's not really a, a a forethought of who does this affect it's more of who will this reach yeah. And I think it's it's a it's a cold place and I imagine at this point in time very 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 cutthroat. In the 90s, I mean imagine I, I don't know specifically what it might be like now. I mean I, I got a taste of it, but I imagine in the 90s people were just just I imagine metaphorically and maybe actually getting stabbed for stories. I don't know. Yeah. Brutal brutal place. Um because everybody's fighting for everybody's fighting for us, uh, you know, a slice of the audience. There's only so many eyes and they want them on your, you know, their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So feelings be damned, I guess. <laughs> so that kind of, um, that brings us to the close of part mm. two of the 27 club. Any closing remarks or thoughts you have, Joe, man? Yeah. I don't like calling it a club. I mean, when you really going back and no, it's, it's, it's what they called it. And, it, and yeah. to keep it from getting confusing, um, we, I mean, that's one of the things we talked about in episode one. Um, I don't like calling it a club because it's not a thing you join per se. It's a thing you wind up being a part of. 
um, in certain circumstances. And that's just what everybody called it. And to call it something else just makes it confusing. So, yeah. But in truth, it's just a group of people that we lost too young. It's a, yes, a lot of people that likely had a lot more to give. I mean, Hendrix in his case was already working on new stuff. Brian Jones was working on new stuff. Jim Morrison was cleaning himself up um, from like his rough years. Um, Janis Joplin was, was kind of going strong. Like, I I think they were going to, I think she was going to, she tried what one point, but she was kind of constantly living hard. So I think Janis Joplin's might've come later, hopefully, or like, I, you know, I wish it could have been sooner for all of them. But I mean, what we, what we have in, in these cases and all of these cases is that they had really vibrant, but short careers um, in one way or another that had insane stress from the music, you know, the environment of where their music was created. Um, Yeah. I, I don't think the music industry I mean, they had been around for several years at this point, and there's notorious stories about things going on in the 50s, mm, 60s, yeah. like just songs getting straight up stolen, um, just hit factories of people being in like cubicle type sittings, like with pianos in them, where they're literally next to each other trying to write the next hit, stealing from each other there. Wow. Um, it's it was It was a cutthroat business, and it was most certainly had the time to refine itself and become maybe put like mental checks in place. I mean, in the seventies, I don't want to say I'll be like, okay, I get it. Maybe not around this time. There's really no excuse for it. But um, even as a whole mental health wasn't really, it's, I mean, it's still not as prominent as it needs to be even now, but yeah, definitely by cocaine, uh, cocaine, sorry, Cobain's time, definitely by Amy Winehouse's time. Um, I think the industry should have stepped up and put at least like some kind of like health insurance thing or like a wellness person that just checks up on you. It's not a natural thing to be super famous, you know, for a single, for it's not a natural state of, of being a human being. Most of us like will have a couple, maybe a couple, I don't know, 50 people to a hundred people that know your name. Millions of people knew who Amy Winehouse was. That's not normal. Yeah. So to, there, nobody knows how to react to that. I think very, very few people just handle that well. So, and I, I think um, it, it is, I think it's kind of on the, the music industry for being, you know, we want you to get famous. We want you to make us money. And it's like, well, you need to make sure we stay alive. Yeah. It's kind of on you. If you want this, then you need to do this. Yeah, and it's that it's that like time to learn how to deal with it because you don't just know how to deal with it from scratch. No, you no, know, there's and, no, and, there's no text. I mean, uh, people are getting like what Justin Bieber started off on YouTube. Nobody yeah. really could have predicted him becoming the star he is now, whether you like him or not. Um, nobody could have predicted him taking off that way. So there's no time to prepare to become that famous that quick. It's a it, whatever the music industry would do would have to be reactionary. I I, I concede mm. that. Yeah, it'd be really hard to predict it, like we just said. But um, there needs to be something. There needs to be safety checks in place, like wellness checks. Yeah, I think there's a comedy club I I had heard watch an interview on where the the comedians that like rotate out of there like they check on them, like there's like a mm. 
they have meetings. I feel like almost comedians, uh, when it comes to like, you know, uh, uh, showing that art as yourself and it being judged and like, that's a form of yourself. I almost feel like comedians more so because I mean, they're like talking, you know, it's not just like, right. a, I'll repeat this chorus and go to the next line. Sometimes I don't even need to write a verse that like is meaningful to me as long as it makes money. But with comedians, it's like, uh, they write like, you know, two, three hour special and they're speaking it the entire time. And it's, you know, it's just, yeah, there's no music a lot more. Yeah. There's a lot less exactly to hide behind. So you get uh, the kind of brunt force of, uh, people being either judgmental or loving it. Yeah. And there's a lot of mental fortitude. You need to be a stand up comedian. Yeah. I did try it once. Yeah. To be fair, it was stacked against me. I tried to do it at a church. Oh, and it wasn't, and it, <laughs> and it wasn't Christian material. I think anyone uh, who's listened to this podcast long enough will could have expected that. Probably, yeah. I mean, it wasn't Eddie Murphy raw, <laughs> but uh, but it wasn't what you would call church material. Mm, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, having that having that for a moment. Oh, terrible pressure. But um, yeah, no, that's uh, more or less. I think the the conclusion on this is. I think the music industry needs to spend some of the money that they're not paying artists from Spotify and invest that into uh, wellness checkups. Yeah, maybe a little bit, uh, a little you bit. know, at least uh, a little bit. And if you're an independent artist, which I think is maybe at the better way to go, um, <laughs> I think you need to, you need to invest in your mental health. I, I think anybody anywhere needs to do that, but especially, um, yeah. Uh, if you're if you're in the situation where you, you find yourself to being super famous, not knowing how to deal with that, I think you need to invest. Yeah. For all those very super famous people that are listening to us right now. Yeah. Uh, please uh, make sure you take that mental health day. Yes. Or <laughs> be that friend or talk to a professional. Yeah. Professional help can't be can't be understated. So and you don't need to be famous to go to go get some help. Yeah. No. No. I, everybody's worth a good like spa day or like getting honestly, I think the best thing you can do, the most immediate thing you could do is get enough sleep. Yeah. Like and one uh, of these things I would, I'd write these people partied like nonstop. I, I, I know I'm only like 26, but I'm getting too old for that. <laughs> and I mean, we're not professionals, but you can still talk to us over on Twitter at <laughs> fan of jukebox underscore at Facebook at fan of jukebox. Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, we're, we're, we're on the social medias at Phantom Jukebox. Just look us up. Just give us the old Google. <laughs> give, give us the Google. <laughs> or Bing us, I guess, if, if, you, if you really feel fancy. So a um, couple of things. If you have seen um, Nirvana's Kurt Cobain is a satanic Buddhist, if you have a copy of it, I need to see this. Um, so I would love to watch it. If you could just slide that tape in our DMs right quick. If you, uh, if I can get an autographed copy, <laughs> I will hang it on the wall. Oh, yeah. That's getting framed. That's yeah. I will frame it. I want to get a book from the guy that uh, um, wrote the uh, Fantasia uh, Luminati episode. Like when the episode we covered. Yeah. Um, 
the Fantasia being like the mental torture device episode, uh, I, I really I wish I could get a copy of that guy's book mm. about Disney. Uh, I don't know if it's I don't, it's not really in print anymore that I'm to understand, but also get like his like mugshot because <laughs> he robbed a bank. <laughs> Well, you can always trust someone who robs bank. You know, you can always tell that they're the great source for information. Find out. Well, no one's reading my, no one's reading my manifesto. So, like the bloodlines of Jesus was. Oh, love that episode. (laughs) But um, yeah, that that, that'll wrap it up for this episode. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, this was a. It's it's tough to say with episodes that this was like fun. Yeah, it it might be the wrong word, but it was very very interesting. And uh, darkly fascinating yes. uh, to learn about this. But I really appreciate everybody um, for um, joining us for this ride. Uh, I want to thank actual audio wizard Kenny Grooms for doing the work on our, uh, doing the, the mastering for our uh, intro music. Uh, I want to get a, a shout out to our social media sorceress, Dakota Galvin, for doing uh, research and help us, helping us out with all the socials because I am inept with the configled light box in my yes. pocket. I'm trying to get better. I'm doing some research. I'm doing more art stuff. So I'm trying to get better with the Instagrams. Like I'm trying to post more art stuff, but I, I I hate making the time for it. (laughs) But uh, rather be drawing and then art and then posting can come later, I guess, but whatever. Um, uh, Thank you, Joe, for being here. Thank you, Ty. I enjoy being here. Glad and, you enjoy being here. And you attempted to make us all sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, on that note, until next time.